West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky interests and also a love for the Lord. I'm James, and with me, as always, are my buddies, Mike and Brian. Mike, how are you doing, my friend? Doing well. Awesome. Doing well. Brian, doing good? Uh, pretty good. Awesome. Since we're all doing good, we'll just head straight into Geek Out. Who wants to go first this time? Ooh, me, me, me. Can I go? Is it my turn? I vote for Mike. I will second that vote and say, Mike, take it away. Yay, motion passes. Okay. Actually, both of you guys came up during our camping trip that uh, the family took to Niagara. Uh, the falls were absolutely beautiful. We went to see it from the Canada side. But uh, I really yeah. wish we, they were here so we could throw them over. <laughs> yeah, well, there was that story wife... about you and the barrel. Yeah, um, when my wife said, get in this barrel, and I said, why? It wasn't until she kicked it that I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> but why um, did we come up for real? One of them was, and I actually really have to give a sincere thank you to you, Brian, because my eldest daughter was asking about geometry and why we're learning this. What, what <laughs> possible practical daily applications do we have once we're talking about, okay, she gets the X and Y axis. Why do we need that? Okay, that's clear. But when are you ever going to see the practical applications of studying anything on the Z axis? And I said, thinking immediately of you, Brian, well, do you like special effects? Because you watch them on TV all the time. <laughs> um, and really just the ability to say, look, here are the applications that you see that you don't understand. And I started with some of the, the science fiction that she loves and saying, look, none of this would be possible if it wasn't for the fact that we have people that are studying this this type of geometry. And I didn't go on into the complex matrices that you, that you mentioned <laughs> a few episodes back. But I thought of them. Uh, you, and, you could even go a little bit further because I usually work on at least five dimensions in 3D, actually. Now you have me curious. <laughs> Should, do, you want, do you actually want an explanation of that? Yes, please. It's my geek out, and I, I want to put the spotlight on you. Do tell. I'm fascinated. <laughs> okay, so you've got your, your three-dimensional space, and you can understand that. You say, suppose you've got a, a room, and you can say, okay, this axis is my X, and then up is Y, and then toward the back wall is Z. Now, suppose you have a piece of paper in that room, and you want to describe the information that's on the paper. Now, you can give it its three-dimensional coordinates. You can find out where the paper is in that room. But when you want to start describing the, the surface of the paper, you need another set of axes. So we call those U and V, and that's what's used for texturing. And then if you've got uh, some three-dimensional textures, uh, procedural noise and that kind of thing, you can even add a third dimension to the U's and V's, W. So in a given 3D scene that you see in a movie, there's already at least six uh, geometric axes present. Oh my gosh, like Geek at Arms podcast peering into the sixth dimension. <laughs> we <laughs> well, we just came up with our new tagline. <laughs> <laughs> I can start talking about uh, the representation of the image and add four more dimensions because you've got the red, the green, the blue, and the alpha channel, and those can be expressed as geometric dimensions also. That is absolutely fascinating. Never thought I would be so intrigued in you know, recording my own podcast. <laughs> 
but if we go much faster, we're going to hit ludicrous speed. <laughs> right. We, we've already gone <laughs> plaid. plaid. <laughs> um, so, yeah, thanks for allowing me a quick comeback to saying, well, no, this is why these levels of geometry are important. And as she keeps on going and saying, okay, now why is this important? I already have the work front loaded as to, well, no, we need this too. Yeah, and you um, can tell her that uh, I regret dropping out of my linear algebra class in college because I found out that I need that too. I have no such regrets. Um, <laughs> something, something that I don't advertise except, you know, on the internet is that I actually failed calculus. <laughs> oh, I failed calculus three times. Well, now I don't feel so bad. There you go. It was mostly because I was too busy... Uh, in the student center playing Magic the Gathering? <laughs> you know, that might be another show episode where we talk about <laughs> when are you being a good friend when you shut somebody out of your gaming group? Because <laughs> yeah. I've broken I've broken the fourth wall on one of my RPG sessions once when somebody wasn't doing homework. But uh, James, you came up as well. And that was, we were really buckling down for a really bad storm that was, you know, I hadn't tested the tent in this level of, oh my gosh, I can't see 20 feet in front of me rain. Ooh. And so I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's what we were expecting. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm just going to put down another tarp over the tent because that extra layer can't hurt. That thought was wrong, but... Um, <laughs> Well, that's the thing is once the winds get up so high, then the extra layer can catch wind better than the tent can. So mm -hmm. I wound up ditching it one way or the other, but I'm like, okay. So tarp, stakes, line. Uh, let's go to the hardware store, get some line. And I'm like, oh, this is perfect. Oh my gosh, this is great. And as I'm starting to, you know, as I'm starting to set this up, and I'm like, you know, this is just the perfect dimension and stretching. What kind of cord is this? It's paracord. <laughs> <laughs> No, so I, I kind of came around like, okay, useful stuff. You know what? I'll just let my tent blow away. I don't want James to be right. <laughs> <laughs> now, where's that dental floss? That's right. <laughs> you know, if, if I loop all the zip ties together. <laughs> um, I'm still keeping the dental floss in my survival pack, but... I'm imagining um, Kaja and the kids in the car. You're sitting in the rain with the remains of the tent around you, huddling in the rain and the cold, staring straight ahead and mouthing, worth it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this, really the, the truth is that every item for its maximum properties, would I put paracord in a survival pack if I'm trying to get it to pack down smaller than a football? No, but is some going into my hatchet bag? Yeah, about 50 feet. So there you have it. You win, James. You win. <laughs> Well, I'll be honest, I was a little worried where you were going to say that you were thinking about me, because after Brian's mathematical theorem, <laughs> I'm thinking, like, mine's just going to be like, oh, you know, someone said a movie quote. I'm like, oh, James would have gotten that. You know, no, it's, it was when the children were saying, you know, I wish I had something to listen to, you know, just spoken audio with a smooth voice, just... Sweet as honey. Where, Spoken where word jazz with James. And, and, and like that, that's where it's going, is James. Um, aside from both of you coming up during my, uh, during my vacation, uh, I have been geeking out to a couple of things. Uh, I have uh, received many years ago 
the book Well Met, uh, Renaissance Fairs, the American Counterculture, which is basically a history and sociology of Renaissance Fairs. That sounds mm. pretty cool, actually. Oh, man. It's it sat on my shelf for years, and I kind of picked at it for a while, but then I finally sat down and like, no, I'm... I really want I really want to delve into this. Well, how old is the book then? It's not very old. I I think it was 2012 uh is the Hold on. Let's see, I just looked it up on Amazon and it's saying 2014. Uh the copyright is 2012. Okay. Uh, it might have come out 2014. It has the feel of something that somebody somebody had the level of research that this might very well have originally been somebody's doctoral thesis that they went back and redid as distribution for nonfiction. It's one of those things like, hey, James, you've been in your fair share of Renaissance fairs. And, you know, there are a lot of things that people try to do with the Renaissance fair. They try to talk about authenticity sometimes. And I think that we all know that Renaissance fairs are not where you want to go if you really want in-depth history. <laughs> yeah, if you're looking for historical accuracy, pure medieval recreation, then going to a Renaissance fair is like going to McDonald's for a five-star dining experience. Yeah, and it's one of those things that I'm not going to bash mcdonald's when you've got two kids under the age of three and it's a rainy day and for the love of all that is good i need a playland please i mean it's a great <laughs> place to go uh, seconded absolutely but you're gonna go there for fun for some semi-tasty food and to just hang out and laugh for a while okay that is what that is the experience you're gonna get at many renaissance festivals it is very faux medievalish be prepared for people in kilts, 16th century garb, lots of fairies, and pirates all together in a parade with bagpipes being played. And it's one of those things, like, you, you have to stop sometimes and say, why? Like, okay, I, I get some of the garb. I mean, some of the garb, you can put at least pieces of it in history. Mm -hmm. But really, why, why is it that we have all of these handmade crafts? Some of them have absolutely nothing to do with the Renaissance. Why do we have belly dancers. They're, I mean, granted, somebody's probably <laughs> doing some sort of belly dancing in the Renaissance in a different part of the world. Why do we have things like, why, why is this here? Why is this kind of music here? Why is this theatrical fake Elizabethan speech here? And this book answers so many of those questions because they're all oriented around the origins of not only why did the first Renaissance fairs happen, but also as they started to grow, what sort of talent were they bringing in? What was the culture, or more importantly, what was the counterculture that was contributing to this wonderful escape from the dominating American consumerism? Mm -hmm. What this author, Rachel Lee Rubin, identifies is a lot of this came out of the counterculture movements that were happening in the 1960s and 1970s. So a lot of the things that came out of the so-called hippie culture were the California counterculture that was contributing to the ideals that were feeding into the Renaissance Fair. And, you know, why is it that we have belly dancing? Well, as they were starting to grow and they were looking for more artists to contribute one of the premier American belly dancers was getting her start there. So it was really a matter of what talent they were trying to recruit. 
which kind of became part of the DNA of the evolving Renaissance Fair that spread other places as other places were emulating it. And the, I'm not going to go for a full review of the book here, but if you ever wondered, you know, why do we have this in our wonderful, fun, Renaissance-ish escapism, this book will answer those questions. And as somebody who performed in fairs, I never had so much of an appreciation of why do we do what we do before I read this book. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like that we could spend almost an entire episode just discussing Renaissance fairs, ones that we have participated in and just been to, because, Mike, you and I have performed in them. Well, I say performed, but we have... I don't want to say we performed at them, but we we did di- we did demonstrations at them, and I've been to plenty uh, with you, Brian, and uh, mm-hmm. I've been going to them for decades now, and like I said, you don't go to one for pure medieval history; you go to it for medieval fun. And I still, you know, we went this year to the Scarborough Fair here in Texas. And we took the boys for the first time, and we had a we had a fun day. I'm going to take a real quick issue with one thing that you said. You said that we did demonstrations, but we didn't do performance. I think now, granted, are we on the same level as some of the you know these other entrenched groups uh, where they have some wonderful theatrical fencing, vixens and guard? I'm looking at you. Are we at their level? Absolutely not. But when we came to do our demonstrations, we were really there to entertain. That's we fair. Really. We did not have hardly any education. What we were doing is we were showing some people that were... I didn't want to convey that we were there doing an act. We were there doing semi-period fencing display with our fencing club back in Kansas. I would say that is a fair description of what we did. Um, Until we got to the point where we were strapping balloons on the public's heads and telling them to pop each other's balloons with sabers. Now, that was amazing. (laughs) I miss that. That must have been after I left. You were there for one year when we did that. I, okay. I remember the one very clearly. But, gosh, there was nothing like just hawking to, to get people into line so that they could get strapped up with so much padding and welding gloves that they couldn't possibly hurt each other. But once you gave <laughs> them balloons to whack on each other's heads, oh, my gosh, the public just went medieval on each other, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> A proper description. So, well met, Rachel Lee Rubin's book. If you do any work with Renaissance fairs or you just happen to love them and you like sociology and you like a little bit of history sprinkled in, then that's definitely worth your time. I've already added it to my Amazon list. Also, what I've been putting my interest into is I'm waiting on a book for Kaja to finish. And I know the way that that can go sometimes. If she has a lot of time in her schedule, it's done and over with. If not, it's back to the, are you done with American Gods yet? Are you done with American Gods yet? Are you done with American Gods yet? Uh, Since I don't want a repeat of that, I went ahead and took a good long hike to a library. The Somerville branch is about two miles away. So I thought, do you know what? Mass Transit's not doing it for me today. I I just need a four-mile walk, and I want these books, so I'm going to put it together. So I got the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Ultimate Collections, Volumes 2 and 3, which were the reprints of the original Eastman and Laird first runs of the nice. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Nice. 
So I'm. You've really uh, been on a TMNT kick, haven't you? <laughs> that was a pun, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I played the video game very briefly, but I thought, you know, why not? Why not get into really what started the whole turtle power? And uh, yeah, I I haven't been going full fledged. Let's review all this media, but. I remembered enjoying Eastman and Laird when I was enjoying some of the graphic novels when I was in junior high. And so I thought, why not give this, give this some adult eyes? And I'm not terribly far, but I'm a couple of issues in. And, you know, it's a little bit tropey. It's uh, a little bit goofy, but that's really what it was. I mean, it was originally a satire of some of the more popular comics that were around at the time and mm -hmm. it's it's just good enjoyable fun i started rereading some of those uh a few months back i kind of fell off i think my kindle tablet was malfunctioning and i couldn't download new books and i just kind of stopped reading uh, but i should i should get back into that i was really actually enjoying the more recent uh, relaunch of the ninja turtles comic i didn't care much for the cartoon show they were doing I didn't like the style, but the comic was was really solid. They've got some of the comic art up around Boston tea stations, so it's it's actually really kind of a New York tourism campaign. Which I mean, I guess if you're trying to sell New York to Bostonians, Ninja Turtles, you know, that's probably not a bad way to go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds silly, but I mean, seriously, I mean, we are now the demographic that are going to be taking our families on vacation or are going to family things aren't in the picture for you. At least you may have some time on the weekend and you can take the train, take a bus for 30 bucks from Boston to New York. And if you're going to make the nostalgia appeal, the Ninja Turtles are going to get the, at least of my generation, it's going to get the attention. And you're going to read the panels while you're waiting for the train or waiting for the bus. Why not Come plant spend some scenes? time in the scenic New York City sewer system. <laughs> You'll get a kick out of it. You know. Will we meet the turtles there? Could be. <laughs> You'll definitely meet something down there. Oh, yeah, I mean, you never can tell what you're going to meet in a sewer. They just uh, they just pulled a young boy out of a sewer not too long ago after some flooding, didn't they? Hadn't seen that no, story. I didn't, I didn't hear that. Yeah, there was, gosh, I don't remember where it was, uh, but a child got swept away into a drainage sewer. That is both frighteningly and, and completely believable. Well, the kid had climbed up one of the ladders and just poked his finger through the manhole hole, like where you're supposed to stick the, lift, the, the rod to lift it out in. And there was a firefighter or a cop who saw the finger sticking up, and he's like, oh. And uh, <laughs> they opened it up, and they pulled the kid out. And the story ends happily, especially for the kid. I should have asked him if he met any Ninja Turtles. <laughs> so I guess, um, I guess where I'm really at is very much in the past. Renaissance fairs in the past-ish. And um, nostalgia factor with the Ninja Turtles. And we'll see how far that nostalgia gets me. Cool. Well, I will go no, next for Geek Out. That is if, uh, Mike, you were wrapped up. I think I'm pretty well wrapped up. All right. A couple of different things for myself. It has been a busy, busy month. We've had all three of the kids' birthdays in the past month since we last recorded. And so between that, between our my wife and I's anniversary, August has just been nuts. And it's... I mean 
finally starting to slow down a little bit. Go ahead. Three children's birthdays, actually one child's birthday, when it's under the age of six is just absolutely exhausting. Yeah. So the fact that you've done three different children's birthdays and an anniversary together, I, I'm, I'm feeling like I would just want to go to bed hearing that. That's what September is for. <laughs> it's just for bed. Just the entire month, bed. And you, the next episode will be me geeking out about the new mattress we bought and the new <laughs> and the new pillowcase. It's so comfortable. Uh, but be careful about getting a memory foam mattress. No, I don't like those. Oh yeah, especially since they remember everything. everything. <laughs> no, I had someone like offer me a memory foam pillow one time, and their whole shtick is that oh, it's you know open cell foam and it'll breathe and it'll be nice and cool. I'm like, then why does the right side of my face feel like it's laying on an oven? <laughs> you, you. Know what that feels like. You must have gone into a lot of candy houses when you were a kid. Oh, well, you know, you find <laughs> trails in the forest, and you just, you got to follow them, see where they lead. And after the fifth or sixth one, you're like, gingerbread again? <sighs> <laughs> How many witches do I have to push in the oven to just get my snack time? Apparently one more. But anyway, there have been a couple of fun things that have happened that I was happy to geek out to. One of them is that I've been, we've talked about this game many times on the podcast, and I just decided to go ahead and get it. I was at our local comic book store with my daughter because it was her birthday. I took her there and said, hey, you know, for part of your birthday, you can pick out one thing. Comic book, game, toy store. And she picked out this little kind of Japanese squishy, squishy thing. And I'd never seen it before, but it was like the softest thing. I'm like, you could like squish it into a little tiny ball and just expand right back out to its normal shape. And I was like, all right, cool, whatever. But I looked around in the game section, like you do, and I saw that they had a copy of the book Monster of the Week. And I decided, yeah, I think it's about time I bought this. That's one I don't have in my collection. Uh, Do tell. I haven't been able to get very deep into it because I've only had it a couple of weeks now. And like I said, busy weeks. Uh, Right now I'm looking into the character creation. And the whole system is built out of, let's take a look at what some of those TV shows like Supernatural, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, X-Files. The ones that were very episodic, like every single week for a couple seasons at a time. It would just be another new monster, another new threat was just coming and going. And that's what the game idea revolves around. To give you an idea of it, here are some of the different character types that you create, or hunters, because you're all playing monster hunters. You've got the Chosen, who is an ordinary person who's given a destiny or special powers like Buffy. The Crooked, who is a criminal-turned-monster hunter. Uh, The Divine, an agent of higher power with a mission to fulfill. The Expert, the hunter who knows all about the monsters and the magic, like Giles from Buffy again. You've got the Initiate a member of an ancient monster-slaying sect trained to fight and use magic, like the Wardens from the Dresden File books. And it goes on from that. And it gives examples of the character types, and they've got others as well. Action scientist, big game hunter. Brian, we've had experience with those. (laughs) Uh, The luchador, the mad scientist, the meddling kid, the snoop. And it's a very fun read, the more I'm reading, the less I'm wanting to run a game, the more I'm just wanting to play it. But because right. I'm the only one around who has it, if I want an experience with it, I'm probably going to have to run the game. 
it sounds like they've got a real embrace of those narrative tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, it's one of those things you can, I don't say that as a, as a critique. I mean, tropes work in role-playing games because we're so familiar with them. We're not entertained by watching it. We're actually doing what we've seen in our media. So it sounds like that just has some wonderful, goofy, fun time. It does. It's very much along the lines of like comedy, action, horror, RPG. It's meant to be run for three to five people. And it tells you this book contains everything you need to tackle Bigfoot, a chupacabra. And uh, it's I thought you had this book, Mike. No, I actually don't. But I'm thinking that maybe I Hmm. should. There's resources for it online as well. As I read more and maybe even get a campaign together, I will keep you and listeners informed. But, you know, you said that you really want to play, but you really kind of seem to have the basics here. Since it's so episodic, if you wanted to get a group together, volunteer to GM the first five, six, eight sessions, and then say, hey, can we take turns inventing the monster of the week and take turns GMing once you get some some experience under your belt? I mean, it, it sounds like it's just ripe for that style of play. That's a very good idea. That's one I might bring up, because I would love to be a character in it. The problem is choosing which one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how is character death handled? Because it sounds like you might have other options. I haven't gotten to that part yet, but this is an episodic style of game, so if my character dies, that's okay. A couple of episodes later, his brother comes into the scene. (laughs) His twin brother, who mysteriously has a different accent. (laughs) <laughs> yep, and somehow is already all up to speed on what's been happening. Uh, so yeah, Monster of the Week, check that out. Another book that I bought, speaking of medieval history, I realized it had been a long time since I had looked into any information about the Knights Templar. Oh yeah, a lot more research that's been going on since the, you know, 1970s. Yeah. My first exposure to them was like my sophomore, junior year in high school when I did a research paper about them. And I just got to thinking that, you know, I I just want to read some more. So I didn't look too hard. It was more of a passing thought. But then I was at our local half-price bookstore. I always passed through the history section just as a matter of course. And I saw they had a copy of A Brief History of the Knights Templar by Helen Nicholson. And this came out, you know, it's... Not horribly. Okay, it was first published in 2001, but then uh, she did an updated edition in 2010. I got it for like five bucks. So well, you can't go wrong with that. Nope. And I'm enjoying it so far. I'm, I'm only on page 15, but I'm enjoying it. And it's history. And every once in a while in the SCA, when I would do heavy fighting, I would wear a Templar's surcoat. That's in memory of a dear friend of mine who, when I joined the SCA, he was joining it at around the same time. And we were both doing heavy fighting together. We both created, along with a couple of others, a household. This was when I was living in San Antonio. And he played as a Templar, a Spanish Templar. Out of all of us, he was definitely the best fighter. And we all thought that this is the one guy, he's going to be a knight one day. And he passed away about six years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. And so to remember him... Whenever I fight heavy, I wear a Templar's surcoat. There's a couple of different styles. Those who were of a nobility or were actually knighted would wear white with the red cross, white to signify purity, and in the red to signify martyrdom. Those of lower status who entered, and those who just achieved the rank of, like, sergeants, 
would wear a black tunic or surcoat with a red cross, and that's what I wear. So as you got into the upper echelons, would you participate in any dark rituals? I haven't gotten that far yet, and uh, I... who knows? So, well, that's the thing, is that uh, it takes until you amass a certain amount of wealth and then move some of your political influence away from France before the dark ritual accusations actually start flowing. Well, I need to wait until my daughter's a little bit older so I can marry her off for a political alliance, and uh, then we'll see where that gets me. I wish you the best of luck. (laughs) I wish for her a better father, but, you know. So it seems to be a good book. I checked out some reviews for it after I bought it because I thought for five bucks, I'm, I'm just going to grab it. And the reviews for it are pretty good. So are there better sources out there? Probably. But this one's not too bad. Well, I mean, at the worst, what you're going to get is a basis and then fine, read the critiques and see what other historians have to say about what holes this historian left. So for five bucks, you just can't go wrong. Not really. Unless it was the pop-up book of the Knights Templar. But then five bucks was well spent for a whole different reason. Although, yeah, I think you could go wrong for five bucks if it was Dan Brown and the Knights Templar. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. So those have been the two books I bought recently. Uh, What else? Uh, News on the Destiny front, video game I play off and on with friends online. Very soon, the next big, huge DLC is going to hit, and that is Destiny Forsaken. And it's really going to shake up the game. Um, One of the more interesting paths they're choosing plot-wise is that they are, and this is not going to be any spoilers because the trailers have been out for quite a few months now and everyone knows already, but the game is going to be killing off the character of Cade Six, which is voiced by Nathan Fillion. I actually did not know that. That's an interesting choice because he's definitely been the most popular character in the game and the trailer and the they even released a couple of weeks ago this eight minute cinematic which shows his last battle leading up to the moment of his death and it's kind of heartrending and they have confirmed even though it hasn't actually showed him dying in the video the sources at Bungie have confirmed yeah he's gonna die Maybe Nathan Fillion isn't aware that you can't get an Emmy for video game acting. <laughs> Sorry. I wonder if there is an award for video game acting. Is there? I mean, surely there is. I mean, there's got to be. Voice you know, acting if there awards. Yeah, I think that maybe the Geek at Arms could, could carve out their niche if, if this is... See, there's the Annie Awards... All right, well, then we won't duplicate their thing. Fine, I guess we won't do it then. <laughs> but that's the only reason. Um, right. But besides killing off who is, without a doubt, their most dynamic character, they're going to make a lot of change-ups to the game as far as how uh, characters change out their weapon systems. New weapons will be included, a higher power level, new powers, uh, new levels, a new raid, new storyline, a new player-versus-player style called Gambit, and so much more. While I'm looking forward to it, while I pre-ordered it so I can continue to play online with friends, I can't help but feel that, once again, just like with the first game, a year after the game comes out is when it finally feels like a complete game. Yeah. (laughs) And I feel like, once again, I've been kind of taken around the block, but I have no one to blame. 
I think this might be why I don't purchase a lot of contemporary games that I want to actually play a whole thing. Yeah. I think one reason I've kind of gone into this one knowing what would happen was because, uh, let me go back, I didn't buy the game to begin with. Actually, a year ago, it was a birthday gift from a friend who bought it for himself as well and wanted someone to play with online. That sounds like the gift that keeps on giving. It did. So I've enjoyed it, and I've purchased the subsequent DLCs. So at the time of this recording, Destiny 2 Forsaken has not come out. By the time I get this podcast edited and released, it will have come out, and I will have played it for probably a few days. And so I'll talk more about it and give a more in-depth review in the next episode. Other than that, my daughter and I have continued to go shoot archery. Oh, I will mention that yesterday we went to an SCA event for the first time in quite a few months. The event was called Braggart's War here in Onstiora, and a lot was going on. It's, it's treated as a competition between three of the central region baronies. There's tournaments for chivalric combat, rapier combat, arts and science, ANS, archery, thrown weapons, everything. And there was also something that Onstiora has been doing a lot lately, something called a Sable Shield tournament. And a Sable Shield is someone who has served or is currently serving in the military. In order to participate in the tourney, you either had to be a Sable Shield or be sponsored by a Sable Shield. So all that was happening this weekend. Uh, it was a two-day event. We went yesterday. I had hoped to participate in the rapier tourney, but because it is Texas and this time of year, it's hot, it's humid, it's at a Boy Scout camp that's located right next to a lake. So they're always going to have fighting first thing in the morning. And getting children together and wife and getting packed up for a day outside and getting out the door... Early is not a word that enters into this concept. I think that maybe if you had told them that it all started at 4.30 in the morning and we really got to get there in time, then you might arrive by 8. If I had told them it started at 4.30 in the morning, then the kibosh would have been put on the whole thing. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I had hoped to have gotten there at about 9.30. We got there at 12.30, which oh. honestly, three hours later, that's, that's not bad. You know, I think that's almost acceptable, really, all things considered. But, you know, I decided that, you know, I'm not going to stress about this. I'm not going to worry about it, about, you know, trying to rush there because it was an hour and a half away. And I'm, I'm not going to stress. I'm not going to worry. I'm just going to, am I going to get to fight? No, but I'm also going to treat this as a time to hang out with my family, see people whom I haven't seen in a long time, and try to have a fun day. And mission accomplished? Yeah, for the most part. The heat does make things hard. Because they did have a hall there, which was uh, cooler inside. They had ceiling fans going, but there were a lot of people there. And so even the hall was pretty full. And there were children's activities. The children's activities they had going all day long were fantastic. My daughter had a great time. She made, like, a cardboard and wood sword, cardboard shield. She made a drum, a little dragon out of a cup and streamers, a pan pipe flute, with different lengths of straws. So the person who was doing the children's activities was on point. She did a fantastic job. My hat's off to her. Oh, and they also made a jeweled cup <laughs> that was made out of plastic. And so that left my wife and I to take uh, the boys around. And we caught up with people. We walked around. So hot outside, it made walking around outside difficult at times. But we did get to watch some of the fighting. 
to which I wish we had gotten there early enough to watch more of it because I had a feeling that if I could have just gotten underneath the pavilion in the shade, parked the stroller under it, and aimed the boys at the fighting field, I could have just left them alone. The fighting going on would have kept them mesmerized. And I was right. <laughs> at some points, they would watch They'd watch the, the fighting, the, the chivalric especially. And they're like, what's that, Daddy? And like, what are they doing, Daddy? And at one point, the fighters had closed very close to each other to where they were trying to use their shields to ward off the other person's arm. And I said, well, there is. They're, um, well, they're hugging. <laughs> Except with this hugging, there's a winner. <laughs> At that point, if they're getting ineffectual with their swings, like, what are they doing, Daddy? I, 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 don't, I don't know. I'm watching the same fight as you. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> That's when the heckling can begin. Daddy, what are they doing? They're taking their sweet time. It's what they're doing. But they really enjoyed it, and it's interesting the boys are the first of what seem to be a stream of baby boys in our local barony. At least four other parents who are in our group here, all within the past two years, have all had baby boys. There's something in the mead. There's something. I was, I was going to say the, <laughs> something in the water, the mead, the air. I don't know what, but... And I told the other parents, I'm like, there's going to come a day not too long where all these little boys are just going to form their own little pack and they're just going to raise hell and high water in every event we go to. Is it a ar small army? No, it's an army of small. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> one reason we did want to go, though, was that yesterday was also, our, uh, was also an investiture for our barony. And let me explain what that is, was that we had chosen a new baron and baroness, and an investiture is where the old baron and baroness steps down, and the new baron and baroness step up, take oaths before the crown, and they become the new leaders of the barony. So we had a couple of new people step up, nice folk, and we talked with them a little bit before court that evening. And I said, look, when these kids get older, because I believe in Onstiora, the age to start youth boffer combat which is the precursor to heavy chivalry combat, is six years old. So they're a few years away. But I said, when the day comes when all these boys are just about to hit that age or are just old enough, I'm going to get all the parents together, and we're going to have a youth armoring day at my house. I'll buy the PVC. Another parent can buy the foam. Another parent can buy the blue and white duct tape. And we're going to have a, a foam armoring, and we're going to make sure every kid in the barony has a buffer sword and shield and equipment and a tabard and we're gonna make sure there's plenty of loner gear as well and we're just gonna make this a the elfsey youth fighting household and when you want a couple of helmets for that let me know got a couple of spares in the basement awesome i'll take you up on that i had hoped today to go back to the event for a few hours because today was the archery competition and as i've mentioned many times my daughter and i are really enjoying archery together and i wanted her to see a tournament and how it's run and maybe even she and i could get in a couple of rounds after all of the official shooting was done but spending a day outside in the heat and the long drive we were just blasted we were tired and because i knew i was going to be getting together with you guys to record today i didn't want to drive a total of three hours just to stay there for three hours fair <laughs> so I thought, you know what, there'll be other archery tournaments. It's okay if I miss this one. 
And and I, for one, super appreciate you coming to do recording with us instead of spending that day with archery. Well, I would have thought of you, actually, anyway, because I keep your picture around with me just in case I need to affix something to a target. <laughs> I was going to say, you need motivation to hit that bullseye. That's right. But so far, maybe I like you better than I know because I've only hit the bullseye once. Here, sweetie, whenever you see this man, this is what you do. Well, maybe you should uh, use a picture that doesn't make you want to close your eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Bravo. Well done, sir. Well done. I mean, I'm not going to deny I've got a space that's made for podcasting. (laughs) Well, you're no Garrison Keillor. Oh, Oh, and my daughter wished it pointed out that she has actually gotten a couple of bullseyes herself. All right. Good job, kiddo. Mm-hmm. I am actually very pleased with how she is progressing. And she's regularly getting arrows on the target. Yeah, I guess it's about time to buy her her own bow. So for the last thing for my geek out, for a while now, we've had old phones. I say old phones. They're still smartphones, but they're old. We bought them over three years ago. My wife and I had a couple of iPhone 5Ss. And while they're great and all, I still find myself missing my old LG or Samsung flip or slide phone. My, not smartphone, but my, you know, dumb phone or basic phone or mundane phone, whatever you want to call it. I I miss those because I, I liked not having a smartphone around to distract me. But especially with kids, it made sense to have a smartphone. And I was fine holding onto my 5S for as long as possible until I noticed that the screen was popping out the front in a couple of places where it shouldn't have been. And then I thought, as the week went on, I'm like, oh, it's, that's popping out further and further. I can see inside my phone now. Yeah, so it was time for a new phone. <laughs> yeah, especially when you have components that are swelling, like especially if you have, I don't know, say a battery that's swelling, that is potentially not good. No. So we went to the store, and we're not like iPhone purists or uh, Apple fan people. Yeah, we're not iPhone Apple fanatics. Apple, Samsung, whatever. We happen to have iPhones because that's just what we happened to get the first time around. And I thought for simplicity's sake, we'll stick with it. So we ended up getting a pair of iPhone 8s, and I'll admit, it's a pretty cool little piece of technology. Actually, it's not so little. This thing is like a good quarter the size bigger than my old phone, and it's neat. I will give it that. The biggest pain, though, has been, and anyone with a new cell phone can commiserate, transferring everything from the old one to the new one. I miss the old. That is absolutely no fun. Yeah, I miss the old days where you could just give them your old phone. They would plug it in to a cord, plug the new phone in. A couple of minutes later, all your contacts, all your junk's downloaded, and you're done. And just to transfer my contacts, I had to download a transfer app on my old phone, download the transfer app on the new phone, go through a whole process, photograph a QR code, because that's still a thing, and then it started doing it. And I'm like, this, this just seems. What happened to the cords? Well, I was about to say, at least they didn't make you buy a uh, proprietary $80 cable for it. Yeah, that's the truth. Thankfully, all of the uh, cables that worked on our 5S still work on the 8. And really? one, Yeah, same charging cable. Hmm. 
I thought they had changed that. Maybe they did that for like a seven or something. I it? think it was from the four to the five. Ah. Because we used to have a four. The iPhone 4S was like our first smartphone. And one cool thing about this one, the eight, is that it does have that wireless charging capability. Where you can just set it on top of like a little pad and the pad will charge it without having to plug anything in. I'm going to be honest. I have no idea how that works. <laughs> I think it's awesome. I think it's cool, but magnets. Ma- it's aliens, aliens, and magnets. Actually, microwave radiation, low level, which is why you can charge your phone in the microwave. <laughs> At least that's I choose I not to believe you, Mike. I think you really shouldn't, but I, this is a public service announcement. <laughs> Don't listen to anybody on the internet that tells you to charge your phone in the microwave; it will break it every time. That's right. <laughs> Instead, the proper way to do it is by putting it in the toaster. It already has, it's already built so you can charge two phones at a time. Just make sure that you turn the knob all the way to the right so you can get a full charge. It's so obvious. I mean, when I charge my phone, it gets warm. Hence, warming the phone up charges it, right? That's sound logic. That's right. So, you can tell it's sound logic because I, I used the word hence. <laughs> <laughs> I have an English degree, and I can confirm that he is correct. <laughs> I used to teach philosophy, and I know why that syllogism goes wrong, but I'm still going to tell you that that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> and that will wrap up my geek out. <laughs> what about you, Brian? What have you been up to? What have I been up to? Um, well, I guess I'll give you my reading list first. I recently read The Rise and Fall of Dodo, that's an acronym, D-O-D-O, which is a really fun, interesting, uh, what's the word, epistolary time travel story. Okay. Interesting. Uh, And I won't say too much about it in case anybody decides to read it, because the experience of reading it is more fun than hearing someone describe it, but it's a good story. Interesting blend of science fiction, quantum science, and witchcraft. Interesting. And I read I read one of the books in the uh, the Brother Cadfile series. Uh, James, you're familiar oh, with those, I know. Yeah. Oh, yes. I read uh, A Morbid I, Taste for Bones in my undergrad. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I had, it had been a while since I read one, so I picked up uh, St. Peter's Fair kind of on a whim, and another good read. Uh, and well and then, enough. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Uh, the author is... A uh, linguist, I think. Linguist scholar is what her Wikipedia profile says. That would make sense. And uh, I picked up the confusingly titled second book in the Lensman series entitled The First Lensman. Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, I was, when I started reading that, I was really confused. Like, is this the book I want? Because the next one is called The First Lensman. Is that really no, book no, two? The, the third no. book in the four-book cycle is called The Last Lensman. Right. <laughs> and, and, then, and then the one after that is called the Lindsman X. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's been another enjoyable read. That's, uh, I think, was published in the 50s or the 40s. Um, so you can get it really cheap these days. I think it's a dollar on Amazon. So that's been my reading. Oh, and, of course, Green Arrow comic books, because I'm always reading those. Of course. But the thing that's really gotten me geeking out and excited as I got a new computer. Nice. <laughs> yeah, been, how's it going for you? I've been limping along on a loaner that had a Pentium processor in it for the last nine months. 
and being a tech guy and being a guy who loves his video games, a Pentium processor was really not satisfactory. So how did the Oculus Rift look running on a Pentium? Oh, I didn't even bother trying to plug it in. <laughs> you would have blown the poor thing up. Well, yeah, how would you run a marathon with only three toes hastily glued to your thigh <laughs> in lieu of the rest of yeah. your leg? That's about right. how it would work. <laughs> and my video gaming the last couple of months has been uh, Spore, because I never played that oh. the first time around, and I figure, oh, that's 10 years old now. I should give that a try. I honestly don't know what the hype was about that. It's not really a very good game. It's more like it's four or five not very good games kind of squashed together that makes an adequate game. But it was all I had, so I played it. Uh, but now that I've got this new thing, and I can plug my Oculus Rift into it and get back into the fun of VR, I am finding it doesn't have quite enough ports on it, so I can't play Elite Dangerous because the Oculus takes three USB ports, and my flight stick and throttle takes two USB ports, and I only have four. Hmm. So <laughs> I need to buy a hub so that I can play that game again. See, Elite Dangerous is one that I've been curious about. They've got it out for the Xbox, and I'm like, that that looks like fun. I just don't know. But I imagine playing it on the Oculus Rift would be a whole nother experience. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a transformative on the Rift. In terms of gameplay, it's not really all that great. I mean, there's... It gets old pretty fast, although I haven't played the uh, expansions that they've released. I think there's two. There might only be one. But when I was playing it the first time around, I was like, okay, well, you can do freight runs across the galaxy. And, okay, yeah, space trucking, that gets boring eventually. So I'll go and I'll do some bounty For hunting. For you, a, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do some bounty hunting in a asteroid field, and, you know, that's fun for a while. And then you realize... It's all procedurally generated, and so you get the same thing over and over and over again. So I kind of put it away for a while, and then I got the Oculus Rift, and I put that on, and I jumped into it, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is so much better. Unfortunately, at that point, I was on my big trek to the black hole at the center of the galaxy, and I hadn't played for several months, and I couldn't remember any of my controls, and I was terrified because I had all of the wealth that I had gathered wrapped up in this one spaceship, and I am... Tens of thousands of light years away from the nearest space station. <laughs> and I was just afraid I was going to make a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I was like, if I hit the wrong button, I'm going to accelerate at light speed into a star, and or everything will be lost. To a supernova, and that adventure trip real quick, wasn't it? <laughs> Nicely done. Indeed. So, and I even after I got the Oculus Rift installed, and it was like, it's something like a. It took me four or five weeks to jump out that far. And it was taking me a similar amount of time to get back. And I was like, I was almost there when my other computer went kaput. And I was like, ah. and now I'm going to be in the same situation. Where it's like, I don't remember what any of these buttons and switches. I have 96 buttons on my flight stick. <laughs> you don't um, do things halfway, do you? I, no, I don't. I, I had a flight stick for, for the first X-Wing game back when that came out on PC. It had like three buttons. <laughs> Same here. Okay. I, I exaggerated a little bit. It has 32 buttons and switches, but it's also got a multi-selector switch so that you can set three different things to each button. Okay. So 96 different that functions at the thing. Yeah. 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 And 18 analog axes. Uh, so There are countries saying, out there who have actual jets. Their cockpits are not that intricate. <laughs> so what I'm saying, I don't remember what all the controls do. You You can see why that's a... There's a lot of controls to remember. 
And if I get lucky, the switch I accidentally flip will just deploy my landing gear or turn on a light, but it might activate my hyperdrive. I just never know. This button either makes me land on the planet or it reverses the polarity of the antimatter chamber blowing me up. Why there's a button for that, I don't know. (laughs) Don't worry, you'll never be able to eject the core when you really need to. Yeah. (laughs) Other than that, I've been uh, binging the DC television universe uh, lately. I felt kind of behind at some point, and I wasn't up to speed on Arrow, which I really like. And then the new season's coming, I'm like, oh, I should catch up and I should rewatch all the other all the episodes that I missed. I was like, why do that when I can start at the beginning and I watch five shows simultaneously in broadcast order? That was, I bit off a little more than I thought that I had. (laughs) (laughs) Just like you've got, it started, it all started with Arrow and then they added, they spun off on the Flash and then they went ahead and they absorbed Supergirl into that. And then NBC had Constantine and that's part of the continuity. And then see, they, they spun it off again into Legends of Tomorrow there was, was another one too. Oh, uh, Black Lightning, which hasn't officially crossed over with anybody yet, but I know they're going to because it's all on the CW. Yeah, was Constantine any good? Uh, I really, really wanted to like it. The writing was was not great. Uh, the guy they had playing John Constantine, uh, Matt Ryan, is perfect in the role. I never bought Keanu Reeves as John Constantine. That just didn't work. It feels like that they're just trying so hard to make. Constantine a success or to get it on the air either in movie or TV format and if, the the, mo- the movie was meant respectfully it would be awesome but it's like yeah. I don't know they tried they tried to make it a little they should have either embraced the campiness or tried not to make it campy instead of they fell somewhere in between oh okay and it just, and it, just didn't, it didn't work camp. for me yeah <laughs> Well, they should have used paracord. <laughs> right. Wow. So it's like the idea was great, and I, I really love Matt Ryan as Constantine. He's <clears throat> he is completely correct casting, but the writing just fell down. It it was not good. Gotcha. His appearances on Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow, though, as a, a guest star, he's awesome. But anyway, I'm I'm into the last season of all of that, and I think I'm going to make it through before the new season starts, at which point I will have only four shows simultaneously to watch, hopefully. And they'll only be coming once a week each. But it's been fun. And Constantine did have one fun thing. Do you remember, James, that Unknown Armies campaign in which you talked a like a local sheriff or something into murdering a suspect because you believed he didn't... He wasn't going to get a, a real trial? No, but that sounds like something I would do. <laughs> I do remember in our Middle Earth campaign, we figured out that a member of an acting troupe was the bad guy. And so as the group barred, I finagled my way into the acting troupe, and I improved my way through a scene and killed the guy on stage in front of an audience and made it seem like it was all part of the play. That was awesome. <laughs> There was this particular scene in which it was, I think, uh, an introductory scene for your character. It was just you and me, and you had tracked the criminal to his home and managed to capture him, and then the, the local police came. You were playing a U.S. Marshal, I believe. Yes. And then the local law enforcement arrived, and you were like, I put it into your head, this guy's not going to get off on this because the, the local 
court system is corrupt. And so I was hoping that you would be the one to off him, <laughs> but you talked this other guy into doing it. And there was that scene was in an episode of Constantine. I'm like, I feel like I've seen this before. <laughs> <laughs> Proof once again that Hollywood is listening in on our lives, and at some point it's all going to be part of a TV show or a cartoon. That's right. I, I've been thinking about my life, and I would not watch that show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Just based on your out-of-context posts on Facebook, it sounds pretty entertaining to me. <laughs> oh, God. What am I going to put up today? Yeah. You know, I think that's really why I do things like that. I mean, I... I pull things completely out of their context because I'm just listening because I absolutely love the juxtaposition of absurdity that we see in mundane life. And really something about observing life's absurdities, pointing them out for what they are, just makes life just a little bit better. I agree. <laughs> so I think that's all I had to say about geeking out. One final thing that I forgot to mention earlier, and I feel ashamed that I forgot to mention it. We talked about podcasts in the last episode, and Mike, you talked about the podcast, The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Yes. Well, since the last podcast, um, I have gone from listening to episode one, and I am currently in the middle of episode 74. Oh, they're really <laughs> hitting their stride there. Yep, and I'm sure like many people, my favorite pair of the shows that they do are Sparks Nevada, Marshall on Mars, and like you and your children, I sing the theme song every time. It's hard not to. And I love Beyond Belief with Frank and Sadie oh. Doyle. Oh, yeah, they're great. Almost all of them have been fantastic. Almost all. I didn't care much for the uh, Black Lagoon series, but the rest of them have just been fantastic. Yeah, the Black Lagoon, they phased out, and, you know, for good reason. Mm-hmm. Based on your recommendations, I actually took a look at Star Trek Outpost during my drive to Niagara. Yeah? Yeah, I have kind of mixed feelings about it, because I think that the setting is fantastic. The sound design is great. The acting is, you know, it's amateur actors, and they're, they're really putting their heart into it, so it's about what I would expect. They, at least in the setup, have some real sins of pacing that are that were hard to get over while I was on a drive. On my commute, it's okay. But one thing that they'll do is actually really the same mistake that Star Trek, the motion picture made, is that, okay, we've got this ship and we just love this ship. So instead of having those long pans over the ship, they had the computer read you the details of the ship. <laughs> and then you know, once we're, we're okay, I get it. It's 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 an old class hunk of junk ship, and then we would have someone else tell you about, oh, this is an old hunk of junk that's just kind of cobbled together, and then after you have two people explain to you that it is an old hunk of junk cobbled together, you finally get into a combat scenario where it finally makes a difference that oh, it's an old hunk of junk ship that's cobbled together. You didn't need the two explanations. Just don't don't tell. Show, don't tell. And especially don't tell, then show. Also, they would have, oh, look out. He's the chief, and he's uh, pretty, uh, or what is it, petty officer, petty officer grumpy. Knox, day. yeah. Petty, yeah, and officer Knox is, is really surly and grumpy, and he has his own way, and then he doesn't get along well with others, and then he comes on the show. I'm Knox, and I'm grumpy all over you, and I don't get along well with others. Like, you know? <laughs> I get I get it. 
you didn't have to give me the character rundown before you introduced me to the character to show me everything that you were going to explain. Once it got past the first four or five episodes, it really started to create some very interesting scenarios that it was into. But uh, I think that the reason why they're going to win those awards is apparent because they have wonderful setting. And I think that somewhere along the way, they're going to learn how to write. Think about it, though. The fact that it's taking them a while to find their stride is very Star Trek of them. <laughs> when, you, when you think about it, and you draw the parallels between that and many of the TV shows, especially The Next Generation, at some point, Riker will get his beard, yeah. and the writing will improve, and it'll be a lot better. I believe it, and I'm sticking with it. I'm not going to say that it, the first few episodes aren't, aren't worth it to get there. Um, but I also think, what was our test episode like? And I'm like, oh, I, I, do not, I, I do not want to listen to the Geek at Arms episode zero again. <laughs> okay, on to the heart of our show. We are going to be taking a look at a, another retro review of a science fiction film. And this time we decided on the, was it 1977, 1978? 1977. Like You're going to be looking at the 1977 science fiction classic Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Just a few months after Star Wars was released, we have Steven Spielberg's now critically and actually critical and financial success dealing with humanity's encounter with extraterrestrials. The first thing I guess we have to call attention to is that if you try to go and watch this show, it's hard to know which one you're going to be watching because they have the original theatrical release. There is a special edition re-release, which came out actually a short while after the original. And then there is the director's cut. So I guess since we didn't organize this ahead of time, which one did you guys watch? Well, I watched the director's cut because I wanted to get as close to Spielberg's ideal movie as I could get. I ended up watching the theatrical release because I ordered it through Amazon Video on my TV, and I saw that they had all three versions, the theatrical, special edition, and director's cut. And while trying to find out what made the three different, I accidentally purchased the theatrical release, and I thought, well, I'm not buying this movie again. <laughs> yeah, I also watched the theatrical release, and it was my decision really was how, if I really want to take a look at this with fresh eyes, what was it that the viewers were experiencing in 1977? And even though that's really kind of an, an artificial scenario, since it's not 1977, I've granted I was a child, but I've seen the film before, and also it's it's a different cinematic environment here in 2018. Um, I decided to just go ahead, like we said with the Renaissance Bears, just kind of lean into that artificiality of that reconstruction and just do it. So first impressions of, of this film, whichever version that you watched, what was your takeaway? Uh, well, the thing that's always been frustrating for me with Close Encounters is I didn't understand the nar narrative style um, the first two times that I watched it. And this time... Already being familiar with the movie and knowing, okay, this has got a weird storytelling mode to it. I tried to think about that and understand it a little bit better. And there's a there's kind of a, a hidden clue to what's going on in the inclusion of the uh, guy playing Lacombe, the French 
I don't know exactly what his role was. Yeah, the French guy with the government. At first, I thought that he was supposed to be some sort of expert, but I could never figure out what he's supposed to be an expert <laughs> in expert. Oh, besides yeah. being French. Right. But he was played by uh, Francois Tuff- I'm going to butcher his name because I am not f- French. Uh, Francois Truffaut, uh, who was a prominent director in what they call the French New Wave. And if you... I just... I didn't bother actually watching any French New Wave films because I don't have the patience for that. But I read a little bit of the explanations of what that was all about and the, the qualities that the French New Wave has. And it had this same kind of, we're going to not necessarily tell you the story, but show you these things and the story will arise from it. And so it was a lot less like the narrative style that we see in every other movie and more quasi-fake documentary-ish, if that makes any sense. And once I understood that, I enjoyed the movie a lot more. James, first impressions? My first impression was that the sound mixing on this movie was horrible. (laughs) And the sounds of the special effects and background noises versus the dialogue Mm -hmm. was just so on different levels in various scenes that I found myself constantly it was both of ours first time seeing the movie so we decided to wait till all the kids were in bed and true all the kids were in bed doors were closed but I still found myself constantly adjusting the volume Mm -hmm. to compensate for what was happening on the screen yeah I turned on the huge dynamic range yeah especially in that first 30 seconds or so where you're turning it up and you're turning it up and you're turning it up. It's like, I know there's got to be audio at this point, And it turns out there is, but it's a really, really, really quiet hum. Yeah. And you get up to 70 or 80 on your TV and the, the noise floor of the television is louder than the actual audio track. And for that opening scene where you've got the scientists, they're driving in the desert and then they find the World War II airplanes. For a moment, I had wait. Did I just did I order Close Encounters of the Third Kind? But I've stumbled into an Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> I, I kind of wonder because Spielberg would do Raiders of the Lost Ark just four years later, mm. and I'm wondering if he didn't shoot that scene. I'm like, I want to do more with this. Hmm, what should I do? Well, see, they actually shot Raiders of the Lost Ark at the same time. Oh, Not really? really. <laughs> No, that was a lie. Okay. He had me sold. <laughs> like, if I thought about the timeline for like half a second, I would have known that was... Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but as the story progressed, it took me a minute. I'm like, okay, so we're telling this story from two parallel scenes, both with the uh, Richard Dreyfus's character, who I never did learn his name. He was always Roy. Richard Dreyfus's character to me. <laughs> and than the scientists. I I liked the cinematography. I liked the directing. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was beautiful. I mean, it is is totally a classic. I mean, I can say that it was a classic Spielbergian. Mm-hmm. And he's done enough that I can say that and people automatically know what I mean. But for the story itself, maybe it was because I was watching the theatrical release, but I feel like that there was a lot that they expected the audience to take for granted. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait, wait, what? Hold on a second. I mean, not just in the themes, but also in a lot of the plot points. Well, 
it's a little like what I was saying earlier. They didn't develop the characters. Yeah. They showed you the characters as they were at that moment, and they didn't bother telling you their backstory or what's going on elsewhere. They're just showing you this is a slice of their life at this moment. Yeah. Which, honestly, I, I felt that that experience of those characters was a perfectly genuine way of telling the story if it's a character-driven film. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated being able to be there with Roy through this transformative experience. Though, on the other hand, the only reason why I found Roy to be at all a sympathetic character and the only reason why I was with him even in his mania was because I saw the objects just as Roy did. That unless we have that scene where he sees the the unidentified flying objects, we would be viewing this film very differently. We'd probably be packing mm-hmm. up the kids in the car and leaving with his wife. Yes. Yeah. Without the UFO, it becomes a a psychological thriller. Even with the UFO, I found it this time to be deeply uncomfortable watching him, and I had a lot more sympathy toward his wife this time mm-hmm. than I did the first time I saw it. That scene where he's at the dinner table which has been parodied a lot, and he starts going in on the mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. And the the camera starts, you see the children, you see the wife, and there's just tears coming down some of the kids' eyes. And you talk about sympathy. I mean, you're you're with them. The camera did a great job. You You know exactly how these children, how this family is feeling, watching their husband and father fall apart in their yep. eyes. Without those scenes... It becomes a film where you are watching a family struggle with mental illness, which is one of the reasons why I would say that this is not fundamentally a science fiction movie. This uses science fiction themes and it uses science fiction scenarios to tell a human story about this subjective experience, that there is something that cannot be empirically pointed to why you have this utter conviction and how do you deal in a society with this conviction that is incompatible with the reality that is constructed around them. I mean, because the reality that his wife is living in is also a constructed one. And you have from the very beginning, the pilots that are also having these experiences with UFOs. You know, there's almost a collision. And there are three or four different pilots that you hear on this traffic control that say, okay, we all saw this thing. Is anybody going to file a report? And everybody says no, because they don't want to live outside that construct. Mm -hmm. So this film really is about dealing with these radical, constructed, but incompatible, darn it, constructs. (laughs) (laughs) Now... On that topic, um, if I'm correct, the uh, theatrical version, which you both had, did not have a scene with Roy locking himself in the bathroom and crying in the shower, correct? Uh, oh, no, no, it did, it did not. not. That, would be, that uh, would be a wonderful addition. Yeah, right after the mashed potato scene, Ronnie wakes up in the middle of the night, Roy's not in bed, and she hears the shower running. And she goes and she's knocking on the door, demanding that he open it. One of the kids comes and is wondering what all the noise is and is crying. And she finally 
breaks into the bathroom and he's in the bathtub fully clothed with the shower running and he says i don't know what's happening to me and Mm. she just loses it she screams at him i think i even wrote down what her line was you're wrecking us and that was actually the argument that led to her leaving and that was that was something that was added in the the special edition i don't know if they originally shot it and they just added it to the edit, or if they went back and reshot for that. Um, but it was an extremely affecting scene. All right, we've talked about some of the major plot points, the character points, the audio. Anybody mind if we talk about the visual effects for just half a minute here? I think Not we'll do it more than half a minute. <laughs> all right, well, then I'll keep it to at least, you know, 35. I actually found the visual effects right up until the climax just absolutely despite being dated yes but still hauntingly beautiful and that you can never really quite tell what you're looking at but you know that you're looking at something spectacular Mm -hmm. something unique and something new to the human experience right and i think that part of the fact that it was so indistinct is one of the things that made the visual effects as uh as haunting and beautiful as they were yeah I think in specifically in the visuals, this is a great example of Spielberg really showing us that he knows his craft backward and forward. For those who aren't familiar with the the context of film history at that point, uh, Spielberg, Lucas, um, Coppola, a couple of others are what they call the film school generation. And these were the, the first wave of directors who were, were really raised on film. Um, they were no longer inventing the medium as the directors before them had done, but they had internalized all of that uh, that film language, and they had a above-average technical mastery. And the fact that Spielberg was able to choose his film stocks, he knew exactly what film he needed to use to get those really, really vibrant colors. He knew the processes to use so that his primary photography wasn't going to be softened too much by going through the optical printer five or six times. He knew exactly how to get the image that he had in his head onto the screen. And that really, really shows in that you're seeing something that's unspecific, but it's still very clearly art-directed. It's still very clearly exactly what Spielberg wanted to show you, and you're not seeing anything that he didn't want to show you. So what is it that makes this thing a science fiction classic? I mean, I would say this is, even though it's slower paced, it's ultimately very rewatchable today. I mean, would you would you agree with that as your experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is it that makes this film something that we can come back to and really call it rewatchable in 2018? Before we get to that, let me bring up one more thing, plot point wise, that kind of bothered me and also kind of confused me a little bit. And maybe this is something that I missed because of the constantly having to adjust the audio. Or maybe it's something that is expounded more in the director slash special edition. And that was why the aliens needed to enact some type of mental change onto Roy and these other people when they had already been abducting humans for decades. 
Yeah, that thing came to mind. It's like, you know, why, why are you bothering to choose Roy? And why are you rejecting the yeah. other red jumpsuit people? Because you've taken pilots, a little kid, some dude over there. A Spanish um, conquistador, um, an Indian. You know, I, I found myself, I wanted to pause, I didn't, but I wanted to pause at that scene of all the people coming down, you know, from the gangplank of the ship. And you can see it, there's a wide array of characters coming out of this ship lending to the belief that they've been taking people for a long time none of them wanted to make out with the queen alien <laughs> well that is the central mystery of the movie what it, what did the ufos want and it isn't resolved ever the other thing that kind of bothered me is when we first saw the red jumpsuit astronauts or whatever First, I thought, I'm like, oh, these are alien specialists they're bringing in, you know, quasi-military group who's going to take charge. But then towards the end, I realized, oh, no, wait, they're prepping these people to be taken to space. Mm-hmm. And I th- first I thought, okay, are they going to do a, a, an exchange of crew, or are they offering up these people as to go with the aliens? And my next thought was, how do they know the aliens will even take anybody? <laughs> how, how do they know to prepare this? How did they know that the aliens would be giving back people because they had some clue that that was going to happen because they had that lit up board with all these missing people's photographs on it. And I feel like that this scientific, this this governmental group that was there that had built this base and had been communicating with them, that they had more knowledge that had never been given to the audience. It's like reverse dramatic irony when the characters know something that the audience doesn't. Yes. Yeah, so, if we actually had that information, I don't think I'd watch that show. <laughs> it's one of those things that if, if we were clued into everything that was going on with this with this project, I think that probably would have, have made a less interesting show more than a more interesting show. And perhaps I guess that is part of what is the fundamental mystery of this movie is that mysteries are interesting. That's fair. And what happens when people are coming out of the theater after having seen this and nobody is quite certain what to make of it and they're having conversations about it? If you give them the answers, then they say, oh, yeah, that was neat. And the conversation is over. True. Yeah. And again, this might be one of those movies that more is revealed with repeated viewings. And honestly, I think that in the course of this conversation, I think maybe we've already answered what is it that makes this an enduring film that is ultimately watchable in 2018 and it's exactly these questions that you've raised one of the things that would make me want to watch it again and something that i absolutely loved was that this was a shiny example of first contact done right official first contact because true the aliens had been you know borrow we'll say borrowing people we'll put a nice spin on it (laughs) you know we've been lending them people unknowingly for quite a while and we figured out their keyboard extravaganza a message and where they're going to land we've built a nice base for them the military is there but only to keep the perimeter to keep people out and maybe also to keep something in but anyway who is there to greet the aliens it's scientists science leads scientists and one junior year juilliard member keyboardist (laughs) don't say that too much you're only going to encourage the students from berkeley (laughs) (laughs) 
But I, I really like that, that those are the people, that it's people in suits, ties, and lab coats who are there to meet visitors from beyond. It's not a government official. It's not a, um, a military general. Like you said, Brian, science leads. And that's who is spearheading the movement. I did have a little bit of anxiety for just a second because as the aliens have come down, or as they're coming down, there is one gentleman who is there, jacket, tie, and as he moves his arms to the side, you see, he tucked into his pants, inside the jacket is a large revolver. And I'm like, okay, wait, is he doing a Chekhov's gun? <laughs> is he literally doing Chekhov's gun right now? Because the gun is... It's obvious. It's there to be seen. It's the only gun, one of the only guns you see in the entire movie. One thing I do love about Spielberg, Spielberg does not really go crazy with the guns. So I'm like, okay, if he's showing it to us, obviously he's showing it to us for a purpose. Okay, oh, are they going to shoot the alien? Is someone going to shoot an alien and this is going to take a turn? Because that, that would be weird. Well, I mean, it's the show that this could go wrong. Yeah. But it's not. Exactly. As I was watching, okay, no, he's showing that hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Because even if this was, you make this a little bit more real life. Say that this is a scientific institution, spearheaded movement, and plan a first contact with aliens. Say that you've got a hundred of the brightest minds, men and women from across the planet there. There's still probably going to be 15, 20 people who are armed. Why? Because something bad can always happen. Well, I think that's one of the great things about this film is that it ends in a way that we, we would not consider realistic. We consider idealistic. I mean, like 2001, A Space Odyssey, it's about human advancement beyond what we're accustomed to at this point. It's, it's about the next stage in our exploration. Yeah. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for our second in our look at classic and well-beloved sci-fi fantasy movies. The third one that we are going to do, not next episode, but the one after, we are going to be taking a look at Blade Runner. So please watch with us, and that will take us to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, what have you got for us this time? This week, I have decided to fight fire with fire. The only way to solve the current zombie apocalypse is with another apocalypse. So with things relatively unguarded, we're going for the nuclear stockpile, and... You know, in the words of Sigourney Weaver, I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. It's the only way to be sure that we're going to end up with glowing zombies. <laughs> I really don't have a clever follow-up for that one. <laughs> well, at least we'll never be afraid of the dark again because we'll have a millions and millions of little walking nightlights. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, that will wrap it up for us this episode. Thank you all for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com and at facebook.com slash geekatarms. Mike, where are we at on Twitter? Uh, we are at armsgeek. I really wish it wasn't armsgeek because that makes it sound <laughs> like we work out. Yeah, find us at armsgeek and... Um... Yeah, there we are. And if you listen to us on iTunes or through Google Play, leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. And, and also is how other people find podcasts. And so from Brian, Mike, and James, we want to say be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. 
For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash geek at arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. I'm gonna sit here alone and do my all by myself things. The all by myself things are what I do when no one else is listening.